The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. One of the reasons we founded the Global Liberty Alliance a few years ago and the Legal Defense Fund was to raise awareness about the importance about the rule of law and back the liberty defenders who uh, struggle with it daily in, in countries uh, right here in the Western Hemisphere who uh, wish they had uh, a legal system a lot like America's where the rule of law due process is respected and many other rights protected. We also, though, wanted to bring home that things that happen in places such as Mexico, the border, Central America, even South America, impact us right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we rarely hear about those connections. You know, why do we send millions of dollars a year in foreign aid uh, when we have so many problems here? Is there a connection? You know, how does transnational crime impact us here? And we're going to start doing that with this podcast, uh, even though in this first one, uh, we're going to have several of them. In this first one, we're just going to uh, begin uh, studying the Commonwealth and taking a look at a part of the state that we rarely talk about, especially those of us in the northern part of the state here in Northern Virginia, in Alexandria and Arlington. Uh, there's um, a whole other Virginia that at times, I think, is neglected by policymakers. And we have a very special guest, August Walmeyer, who I hope we'll have him back. Uh, we just started to scratch the surface, uh, hear the podcast, buy his book, read it, share it, especially if you live in Virginia. It's an important read. And in the podcast to follow, we're going to unpack that region, but also some of the transnational criminal activities that have broken into our Commonwealth, not just in the southern parts of the state, but right here in the northern parts of the state. So thank you for listening and uh, please support the podcast by sharing it uh, with your colleagues. Well, welcome again to another edition of uh, the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. Today we have a very special guest and topic. We're, we're going local this time uh, rather than talk about some of the work we're doing uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere. We're going to focus on some issues right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, where we record this from. We're in Old Town Alexandria. Uh, right now, I'm in Arlington recording this. And our guest, August uh, Walmeyer, he's down in Goochland, Virginia. Uh, August, how are you doing? Great, Jason. Thanks. How are you Great. today? Good, good, good. And thanks for joining us. You know, I'm really excited about uh, having August on, on our podcast today. I, I read his book, Extremes of Virginia. Uh, I've read it a few times, and I've learned quite a bit from it, and I think you will as well. It talks a lot about parts of the Commonwealth that we uh, don't hear as much about, but we should. And I hope that we can get 
into the material, but into the regions, into the, into the, into the separate regions that he talks about in the book, but also the reason why uh, we wanted to focus on, on some of this, and I think we're going to record more than one podcast on this eventually if August uh, comes back and joins us on the show, is to um, contextualize some things that there's a lot we need to do right here uh, in the U.S., uh, especially right here in Virginia. Uh, we do a lot of work outside in, in places like, you know, Guatemala, Mexico, uh, Honduras, uh, Uruguay. And there are some issues that impact us right here in those countries. But there's a lot happening right now that I think you're going to learn a lot today with August. And uh, we'll jump right into the material. I encourage you all to read his book, Extremes of Virginia. We're going to have some links for you to click on and buy the book. Um, let's start at the beginning. August, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, we know you're a, a journalist. Uh, you also spent many, many years in the Virginia Assembly, uh, and you've been involved also in the energy sector. But tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you uh, came to the Commonwealth and, and this great book you wrote. Sure. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I am a Virginian. I didn't come here from somewhere else, which is one of the uh, points that I want to talk about in the discussion today, uh, but I have been, as you say, involved with the Virginia General Assembly uh, for now 48 years, uh, which is hard to believe since I'm only 52. That's a wow. joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, I started uh, as a news reporter, a local news reporter uh, in a couple of major markets in Virginia. Uh, then I was a speechwriter for the Attorney General of Virginia for a while and then uh, went into the energy business uh, with what is now Dominion Energy, and then on behalf of a number of companies who came to Virginia to do business from really all over the world. And that was really the focus of most of my work at the General Assembly as a representative of or a lobbyist for uh, these other power companies that came to Virginia. And really, that was sort of the reason that I began to think about writing this book. Uh, when you're a lobbyist, the, uh, the secret is that you spend a lot of time doing very intense work, but you also have a lot of downtime waiting for your opportunity at the microphone or your chance to meet with a delegate or a senator to make your arguments. And in that downtime, I became convinced over a number of years from listening to senators and delegates from uh, the rural areas of Virginia, I became convinced that the great majority of people in the legislature, frankly, just didn't get it. They didn't understand about rural Virginia. And being a pretty simple-minded guy, I thought, well, if they don't really understand the problems, it's pretty unlikely they're going to stumble across any big solutions. And so I endeavored when I went into semi-retirement to write this book with my goal, frankly, being to educate members of the General Assembly about these other parts of Virginia, what some people now call ROVA, R-O-V-A, which is a funny acronym for the rest of Virginia, mm. uh, excluding Northern Virginia, the, the Richmond metropolitan area, and Hampton Roads, talking about Southwest Virginia, South Side, Virginia, and the Eastern Shore. Now, one last thing uh, is I observe now that in our legislature in Virginia, more than 50% of our elected representatives came here from somewhere else. 
And that's great. That's okay. Many of them come with good ideas, different perspectives, new ways of looking at the problems and opportunities we have in Virginia. But what it also means is that they don't come with any long-term institutional understanding of the rural areas of Virginia, because almost all of the people who have come to Virginia from somewhere else have gone to Northern Virginia or to Richmond or to Hampton Roads. Very, very few have gone to the rural areas. So that sort of doubles down on my observation that the great majority of legislators just don't understand how these areas are different from and have different sorts of problems than the areas that they represent. That's why I wrote the book. And you, and you also traveled, I mean, more than, I mean, you're from Virginia, but I recall reading in the book, you, you traveled more than 600 miles. I mean, you literally got your feet wet in a bunch of places oh. that you visited and you spend a lot of time interviewing folks and it, it's a remarkable insight into a part of Virginia, you know, it's, it's, you said we come from somewhere else. I came from somewhere else. I, I visit, I moved here in, in the early nineties in 92 from Miami. And uh, we set out, my wife and I have to visit uh, pretty much all of Virginia. We've been all the major cities, almost every single county with the exception of Marion and just the, the extreme Southwest. We haven't been down there yet. We want to be down there, but it's so different. And there's so much out there. It's so different from where we live in Arlington. Um, I've always been fascinated, frankly, by the whole north-south uh, tension that there is in the political system, which is quite fascinating. But what really comes across in your book is some of the statistics. I recall reading in there that you, you mentioned, and I want to ask you, do you still feel this way, that you say, you know, bluntly, there is a pervasive sense of pessimism, hopelessness, and doom in the extremes of Virginia. And it, do you still think that way? Do you still think there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done and, and why is that that's happening? Why is that sense of doom out there? I do still think that way. I think that way because the problems of Southwest and Southside and the Eastern Shore uh, are not exactly the same today as they were 300 years ago, uh, but many of the problems are. And in fact, some of them may be even a little bit worse. Uh, the state is paying attention to the rural areas of Virginia. And with some pride, I hope you'll forgive me, I think my book is partially responsible for that, mm -hmm. as well as other people who've attempted to, to show uh, showcase these problems as well. But these problems are really, really difficult to understand. They're very difficult to solve. The unemployment problem in Southwest Virginia is one example. If you're in Southwest Virginia, chances are you don't have access to high-speed internet. You may in fact have access to no internet at all. Uh, and you don't have access to a lot of the other opportunities that are available to our citizens uh, in the urban areas or the suburban areas of Virginia. And so it's very, very hard in today's environment, if you're in Southwest or Southside or a predominantly rural area on the Eastern shore, it's very hard to compete, frankly, with people, for example, in Northern Virginia or in Fredericksburg or Richmond or in Norfolk or Portsmouth, because you don't have access to the same public goods and services that other people do. You have some, has it gotten better over time? Yes. 
I want to make sure uh, to say that and to congratulate our members of the legislature and our governors over the years who paid attention to these problems. But the direct answer to your question is, is the problem still there? Are the people that live in these rural areas still um, unsure? Are they still largely forgotten? Are they still denied the same types of opportunities that our other citizens have? The answer is yes, unfortunately. You know, I was, I was listening to one of your talks, and I'm not sure if this is in your book, but at one point you talked, you had this interesting statistic that Virginia Tech, I think 30 plus people were killed, correct? Um, yes. And you talk in your book or in that talk, I heard you speak in that, that, and this is a pretty sobering statistic that in Virginia, there's about a Virginia Tech a week in opioid death. Is that correct? Yes. That is. And in fact, uh, the numbers that are in my book are now a couple of years old. And I'm unhappy to report to you that, uh, particularly because of the COVID pandemic, the numbers now seem to be going up even more. Uh, in 2012, for example, uh, the rate of fatal, the, the number, excuse me, of fatal drug overdoses in Virginia surpassed all the motor vehicle and gun-related unnatural deaths in Virginia. And it's continuing to go up. There were 1,515 drug-related overdoses in Virginia, more than four per day. Wow. Now, Virginia Tech was a horrible tragedy, and I in no way want to minimize that. But it was a focused event in that it was a one-time, thank God, occurrence that drew lots of public attention and uh, an outcry for change. The drug overdose, though, happens in small drips every day, and it doesn't get the same sort of dramatic uh, attention that a, a horrible tragedy like Virginia Tech does, and it needs to get more than it does. Uh, more males in Virginia die from drug overdoses than females. And it's important to understand that this is not what a lot of people think. It's not the young gangbangers. It is happening mostly to middle-aged males in the 25 to 54-year age bracket. Hmm. Uh, so it's a problem that's scattered throughout rural Virginia and suburbia and urban Virginia that affects people that yeah, we had a little break, break in the. In, hello, August. Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry, we had. Can, can you just repeat that last ten seconds? Because I think we had some signal interference there. Okay. Uh, I don't know exactly where we dropped off, but yeah, yeah, we dropped. To... You, you were you were telling you were telling us about the statistics about. The, the victims of some of these uh, drug overdoses and the problems that it's not what you read about necessarily in the papers, that it's not the drug gang bangers or anything like that, that it's a totally different. Yeah, the drug problem in Virginia, particularly the opioid problems in Virginia are not what people typically think about. It's not a problem for the most part affecting young gang bangers in urban areas. Fatal drug overdoses because of opioid addiction are happening mostly to middle-aged males in the 25 to 54-year-old age bracket. So there, these problems are happening 
overdoses, these fatalities every day are happening to people perhaps in your neighborhood, perhaps on your street, perhaps in your subdivision or people that live in rural areas as well. It's not the problem that most people think about when you are thinking about um, opioid addiction infecting primarily black or primarily poor people. It's much broader than that, unfortunately. And with that, we're coming up to our first break. So when we come back, we're going to get into a little bit more on these statistics. And I know it's not the happiest of data, but I think it helps set the stage for uh, things that people need to know, but also things that we can do about it uh, moving forward. So we're first going to go through a little more background uh, on data from the Southwest Virginia, Southside, Eastern Shore, and then we'll get into some other areas. We'll be right back. So when we took that break, we were going over some 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 statistics about uh, drug overdoses. And I wanted to talk to August about a few more of that data. And correct me if I'm wrong again on this. It, household income in the region that you talk about, Southwest Virginia, South Side and Eastern Shore, am I reading it right that it's 40% less than the rest of the Commonwealth and that the poverty rate in this region is almost 70% higher than the rest of Virginia? That's right. Let, let me give you a quick overview. People who live in the areas that I've called the extremes, Southwest, South Side, and the Eastern Shore, earn about two thirds of what the average Virginian does. People there are older and much poorer. The poverty rate average among people in the extremes is 67% higher than Virginia as a whole. In Virginia, recently, the poverty rate was 11.8%. In the extremes, it was 19.7%. A wow. huge, huge difference. Many more people are unemployed, and that's one reason that people, particularly young people, are fleeing the extremes at alarming rates. Uh, in Virginia, 64.9 or say 65% of Virginians are in the civilian labor force. In the rural areas, in the extremes, that number is 54%. Many fewer people in the extremes have graduated from high school many fewer still from college, where matriculation rates in the extremes are less than half of the statewide average. Now here's an alarming statistic that I, that I find hard to believe, but it is true. Suicide rates in some par parts of the extremes are double, some more than triple the statewide average. Overall, the average rate at which people in the extremes commit suicide is 18.8% higher. In the extremes, the rate is 16 and a half people per 100,000. In the state of Virginia, it's 13.8. Just some of the major, major differences that characterize these areas. The rate of prescription, fatal prescription opioid drug overdoses in the extremes, are you sitting down? is 56% higher than Virginia's. Wow. In, Ta in Tazewell County, in extreme Southwest Virginia, the rate is five times the state average. And you know, Virginia's a growing, uh, considered to be a generally prosperous state, but in the extremes in the rural areas, the population is shrinking. Virginia's population in the first four years of this decade grew 4.1% and the extremes, the population declined by two and a half percent. Young people are leaving. They're going to the urban areas. They're leaving behind an older and grayer population. 
13 and a half percent of Virginia's people are 65 years of age or more, and the extremes is 21%. So that gives you a snapshot of why things there are so different and why I was interested in trying to present these numbers and get these statistics before the legislature in hopes that they would pay more attention and do more things to help. You mentioned, Jason, at the top of the broadcast that you had been to many of these areas, but you haven't yet been to some areas in Southwest Virginia. That's right. Yep. I don't work for the Chamber of Commerce, but if I did, I would say to you, go. Go and see it for yourself. It's a beautiful area. It's a peaceful area. It's a wonderful area, but it is completely different than what you're seeing in Alexandria or Arlington or Northern Virginia or Richmond or Norfolk or Hampton Roads. And I'm amazed at how many people who've lived here all their lives, as I have, have never been further west than Roanoke. A lot of people think, well, Roanoke is Southwest Virginia. Completely wrong, completely That's unfair. right, yeah. I think the farthest I've been, as far as down that, in that part of Virginia, I mean, I've been to Roanoke, but I think I've been down to Pulaski. I think that's as far south uh, southwest as I've been. So um, I love yeah. it out there. It's beautiful out there. But yes, I do need to make a point of getting all the way out there. And, you know, it, I'm glad you mentioned that part of the state because it, down in Axton, I don't know if that's technically southwest Virginia or not, but Axton turned out to be one of the, uh, it was ground zero recently for a very high profile. Uh, and I'm gonna, we're going to provide our listeners a link to this. Uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office uh, investigation a few years ago on the uh, international cartel that was setting up shop down there, the cartel Jalisco from Mexico. And why do you think cartels, I think we know it's pretty obvious when you talk about that data, but share with our listeners, why do you think criminals find safety in the extremes of Virginia, especially in the Southwest and uh, South side of Virginia? Well, I'm not sure that the criminal element is more concentrated in Southwest or South Side than it is, for example, in Richmond, where I live, close to where I live. Well, and they're definitely well, up here in Northern Virginia, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but the, talk about Southwest Virginia for just a moment. A part of the problem there is that illegal drug use and illegal drug manufacturing and selling is frankly part of the culture of that wow. area. When I was doing this uh, research for this book, I came in contact with a young man who was the chief drug enforcement task officer for Southwest Virginia, for the state police. And he was very helpful to me in lots of ways. He told me the story, which frankly floored me. Uh, this gentleman had a young child who was in grade school, and the child was uh, invited to a classmate's birthday party on a certain Saturday morning. And so the state trooper off duty took his child to the birthday party and walked the child into what was a mobile home where the party was to be and found there on the kitchen counter of the mobile home in plain sight, a meth manufacturing operation. <laughs> and the lady who, uh, who was the mother of the birthday child uh, knew he was coming, knew he worked for the state police knew was, he was in drug enforcement, and yet it didn't occur to her that this was anything out of the ordinary. That's how ingrained the drug culture is in some parts of rural Virginia, and also what makes the problem so very difficult to attack and solve. People there 
lots of people to make a general statement with lots of exceptions. People in Southwest Virginia, who, if you don't have an education or much of one, if you don't have a job or much of one, uh, if you have the opportunity to make some kind of money or living by making methamphetamines or opioids or being somehow involved otherwise in the drug trade, you know, it might look pretty attractive because you don't have many other options. You know, th this, um, one of the missions of our foundation, we're uh, focused on strengthening rule of law and we, we, we take seriously, you know, defense of fundamental rights like property rights and labor rights. And uh, you really can't focus on any of these issues when you have to struggle with the issues like those, all these statistics that you're sharing with me. These are very human, human real life stories. And I first learned about this when I went to law school. I went to law school at George Mason University. And one of my classmates uh, grew up in Martinsville. And he opened my eyes to a lot of what happens in that region of the state. And he, he was very blunt with me. He says, I'm not going back. Um, uh, I want to uh, practice law in another part of the state. But he wasn't sure if he could even make a living practicing law in Martinsville. Although I'm, I'm happy to say he did go back. And, and he had, he's a very successful lawyer. And he's been um, doing a lot of good work there. And it's, it, it did open. Again, I grew up in South Florida. So when I came up here, I had this perception of what Virginia was. Uh, and uh, until you really spend time here and travel and talk to folks, you don't really know. I had no idea until I read your book how challenging it can be. And this is something else I wanted to chat with you about, because in some of the work I have done outside of Virginia, like in places like Latin America, something that struck me also was there's parts of Virginia that you write about in your book that rarely, if ever, maybe just once a year, all right, uh, I want my listeners to carefully focus on this, don't have access to healthcare, and they have to wait for something called the Remote Area Medical Clinic, or RAM. I, this is stuff I see in development work in Latin America, in Nicaragua, in, in very poor, poor, poor countries. Uh, how is that, that there are folks who don't have access, with all the federal money we spend on hospitals and healthcare, why do these folks have to wait more than a year or about a year to see a doctor for, for primary care health? Well, the primary reason, I think, is money. Uh, people in, uh, in other parts of Virginia thought that, well, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, this problem of health care in rural Virginia and rural areas elsewhere in the nation would be solved, that the government, the federal government is going to take care of it all. Completely wrong. Completely mm -hmm. wrong. The Affordable Care Act does provide some resources and some help for people who have some money to buy a policy, a health care policy that's subsidized partially by the federal government. But if you don't have any money, you can't buy any policy. You, no matter how heavily it's subsidized, unless it's subsidized 100%, which is currently not the case. And so what's happened over the years is that the health industry in Southwest Virginia has focused largely on this event put on by a group called the Health Wagon in Wise County. The Health Wagon linked up some years ago with a group called RAM, the Remote Area Medical Service, uh, interestingly, you talk about other countries, the RAM operation started in other countries. It started in South America. And the gentleman who started it did it on his own, out of his own pocket, 
his own resources. He did so for a number of years in South America until he realized that, you know, unfortunately, we've got the same problems and worse problems here in the United States. And so he shifted the great majority of his resources to come to rural areas in Virginia and elsewhere in the U.S. And so that's how it got started. They come once a year, the RAM people do, uh, with the health wagon now, uh, to the fairgrounds in Wise County, where people wait in line starting at five o'clock in the morning for a chance to get in and see a doctor, have a test, get an x-ray, have their teeth cleaned, have their teeth filled, have uh, extractions done if necessary. People do that, and unfortunately, not everybody in this day and time even gets in. Here's a chilling way to think about it. The Virginia Dental Association has been a big part of this healthcare outreach for a long, long time in Southwest Virginia. Year to year, they measure their success and how well their effort has done this year compared to last year by counting the number of buckets of extracted teeth Oy. that they take out. Wow. Now, now that's, that's not our, our world in Goodson County or Richmond or Northern Virginia. That's not even third world that's in right. some parts of the, of the, of the globe. It's, it's frankly depressing. But people come there because, to answer your question, they have very little other choice. It is, it's important to also say and give credit where credit is due that the Virginia Department of Health is a big partner to the RAM outreach in Southwest Virginia and elsewhere across the Commonwealth uh, too. But even then, then they can't do all that needs to be done. The RAM operation uh, in conjunction with the health wagon I'm happy to say was started, the health wagon started uh, more than 25 years ago by a Catholic nun dispensing donated medicines out of the back of her Volkswagen bug, driving from county to county, town to town in Southwest Virginia, where she would be known to be on a certain street corner at three o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. And she would do the best she could to donate healthcare, donate medicines, and she was a registered nurse to give help to people who needed it. It started in incredibly humble ways and has grown now into a major event. The health wagon, if I can uh, take the liberty of making a small, uh, well-meant advertisement here, the health wagon is a fantastic ministry, an operation that is worthy of support from all of your listeners. They've been chronicled, among other things, on, uh, around the globe. Uh, no, the BBC. No, I, yeah, I've, I've read about her. We're gonna, we'll, we'll be sure to provide a link um, on the website so the listeners can uh, uh, right. learn more about her and maybe donate some funds and help her out, uh, help the group out. I, I, I think you know, it's, it's when you describe that medicine program, I want our listeners to understand something. This is the sort of thing that a lot of NGOs dedicate their time to do, like he just said, in other countries. Uh, it's, um, uh, I frankly find that it's embarrassing. I, I think we have to take care of our, of our folks first. I think America is a very generous country uh, and we share our, our, our generosity because that's the way Americans are. We love to help and, and help people in need, but there's a lot we have to do right here, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you about this so we can kind of raise some awareness, but also 
uh, talk about some of these solutions too that you talk about in your book. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Again, I want to stress to folks, we've just started to scratch the surface uh, on a lot of material that we could unpack in the very brief time that we have. But I'm glad we have a little bit of time with August today to go over this. So we'll be right back and pick up right here with uh, some of the proposals that he has to try and fix some of this. So we've talked with August today about his book, Extremes of Virginia, that I strongly encourage our listeners to purchase and read, uh, especially my friends uh, who work in the U.S. Congress. Let's talk a little bit about the federal-state uh, relationship, and then we'll jump into uh, some potential solutions. Do you think that the federal government, particularly uh, the way that we handle the budgets, uh, the federal budgets, has done all we can? Or, or do you think there needs to be more discussion about how to deal with it? It's not just that I mean, it comes across in your book and in your talks. It's not just about money. It's about mindset and political will. But what, you know, there is a task force in Congress. There's a real task force to deal with some of these issues and try to come up with policy recommendations. Uh, there's also this issue about if you could talk a little bit about the Northern Virginia versus the rest of the Commonwealth so that our listeners can better understand what that means. But let's first start with the Congress. I mean, what do you think we can do, if anything, via the federal government, or do we have to rethink the state-federal relationship? Well, rethinking the state and federal relationship would certainly be helpful. Rethinking the mindset at the federal government would certainly be helpful. Rethinking the mindset which I tried to influence, and the state government would be helpful. Uh, all of it needs to be rethought. Uh, we are a very wealthy nation. Virginia is a very wealthy state. And if you were to go to the Health Wagon uh, Annual Clinic and see people showing up there needing help, you'd have to wonder. It would just occur to you to say, why are we doing things this way, and can we do more now? I've been associated with the government as a lobbyist for a very long time. Everybody has their hand out. Everybody thinks my cause is better than your cause. Everybody wants a larger share. I get it. But I think if we don't do something different, we're then destined to repeat this history, which has gone on for a long time. There are parts of Southwest Virginia now where essentially the standard of living isn't much better than it was 300 years ago when the first Scots-Irish settlers went out that way. Wow. Not, true, not true for everybody, but true for a lot of people. I have made the, the major recommendation in my book that we need to think differently and we need to have more information. We need to get some highly qualified outside help to help us understand this problem. This is it's a problem of money, but it's not just a problem of money. It's a question of spending the money in the right way to give people incentives to do the right thing and to make improvements in their lives. Let me ask you something. I've had some experts tell me that uh, Virginia is blessed, of course. We have a lot of natural resources here, a lot of talent, and a lot of potential. And that we go through these cycles uh, because we're so close to the federal government, you know, after the Reconstruction, then World War II, then 9-11, and I'm not sure where we're at now because we're still going through this horrible pandemic and who knows, and, and a lot of global readjustments. 
do you think a lot of this is because a part of the economy is so dependent on the federal government? Or do you think the issue is that we need to even rethink that aspect of it because we are so dependent on the federal government? And uh, maybe that has kind of hurt the entire state. Well, Virginia is more dependent on the federal government than many other states, maybe than all the other states. That's certainly true. But it's also true that unfortunately, these problems in our rural areas, I have found in doing my book, <coughs> excuse me, and in looking at other states, these problems are not unique to Virginia. You right. find the same problems in Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio and California, believe it or not, and other states as well. The problem is, uh, frankly, in my view, uh, a fundamental problem of politics. Think about how many people that live in the rural areas compared to how many people that live in the urban and suburban areas. And you translate that very quickly to, this is from someone who's spent a big part of my life as a lobbyist, you translate that into votes. Politicians, generally speaking, with some exceptions, generally speaking, vote to do things that are helpful to their constituents. In Virginia, there are more politicians who are thinking about their constituents from urban areas than are rural areas. So lots of the time, the decisions are made in favor of urban areas versus rural areas. That's just the way the system works. I don't defend it as being bad, uh, as being good. I don't criticize it as being bad. It just is. Now, I need to say one other thing for my political friends. Many politicians think, as I just said, that they care about their district, their people, their voters. But there are, of course, some exceptions. There are some statesmen who think more broadly, think about the entire Commonwealth, who think about the larger whole, who think of that word literally as what it means, a common wealth right, right. Uh, for all the people in Virginia. Sadly, I'll tell you, my opinion is that those people who think that way are distinctly in the minority. Hmm. You know, it's interesting you mentioned um, the, the spending. Uh, you have an interesting section here in your book where you talk about the war on poverty. And it's an interesting statistic that I want folks to listen to that federal government, according to the Heritage Foundation, has spent $22 trillion on anti-poverty programs, three times the cost of all U.S. wars combined. Right. But, that, but that poverty today remains statistically relatively unchanged at 14%. Yep. And I think that proves my point that we need to start to think differently. We need to do a better analysis of what these problems are. We need to better understand the ramifications of subpar education, mm -hmm. of subpar healthcare, because otherwise the government's philosophy for a long period of time state and federal, and to some degree, local government's philosophy has been, well, if you have people who are poor, give them some money so they won't be so poor. Well, you know, that's the old uh, adage, uh, I think, from the Bible about teach a man to fish Amen. or give a man a fish. That's right. Uh, we need to think about it differently. And, you know, as um, we head toward the end of the, of the podcast, there's, we're going to talk about two quick areas. But before we get into that, uh, we do a lot of this in other countries. We go into other countries in these very complex, expensive foreign aid programs where we, I'm not, I don't endorse nation building. I don't think we should be engaging in that sort of thing. But 
we, we have done it and we've, we've, we've spent billions of dollars trying to uh, share that type of uh, teach how to fish mentality and uh, to other cultures, other peoples. It's very well received in most cases. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we, we need to start doing some of that here as well. And it's also, frankly, a, a nature of the economy. We've been exporting out a lot of our jobs uh, and having foreign countries do work that maybe we could do here. So it's a combination of a lot of things, like you said, complicated. And you talk about one complicated issue that uh, resulted in solution. Um, tell listeners briefly about the whole tobacco settlement and how Virginia was able to deal with a tough issue and come up with solutions? Well, I think it's a mixed story, candidly. Mm -hmm. uh, the Tobacco Commission, uh, Tobacco Industry Settlement uh, gave all the tobacco producing states, including Virginia, a very large pot of money, more than a billion dollars. And Virginia chose to use that money to help to revitalize the tobacco growing regions. Uh, and in the extremes area that I've talked about, that would be southwest and south side, not really for the eastern shore. Uh, they have done some good things. There's no question about it. They have spent money uh, to build industrial parks. They have spent money to uh, help businesses get started, to uh, underwrite education uh, for lots and lots of students, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but I think candidly, you'd have to look at the facts today and say, after spending all this money, they have not revitalized these regions. These regions are still stuck in poverty and still need a lot of help from the federal government and the state government. So good intentions, a good program that achieve a lot, but it was a program guided and funded and directed by politicians. Mm -hmm. Again, some looking at my legislative district, some looking more broadly at the entire region. It's had some success. It's had some failures. Well, you know what they say about the road to where is paved with good intentions, right? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what, 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 once we come back, uh, once we come back, we're going to just wrap up with the, a few of the proposals that August lays out in his book and close on a high note. We'll be right back. Okay. And three, two, one. August, thank you so much for spending some time today with us. I know you're heading out on a, on a family trip and we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat a little bit about your book, The Extremes of Virginia, that we're going to recommend to our readers they purchase and read. Uh, we talked a lot today. We unpacked a lot. Uh, hopefully we can do this again. You, at the end of the book, you come up with some ideas about concrete steps that uh, policymakers and interested parties can take. Uh, can you share some of those? And do you think that uh, we can do that in this political climate that we're in today? Well, the major recommendation that I made in my book was uh, that, again, we need to understand the problems better and redirect our efforts to finding core solutions that will last for a very long time. I suggested that the legislature or the state government hire uh, a national or international consulting firm to do that work. And frankly, that idea met with uh, some opposition in the legislature. What did happen, however, was that uh, a lady named Terry Sullivan, who at the time was president of the University of Virginia, 
uh, read my book and spoke with me and on her own initiative started an effort that she called the Rural Virginia Initiative, which was designed to uh, do exactly that, to use the resources of the university and its many, many experts in lots of diverse fields to understand the problem and come forth with some legislative solutions and recommendations. Uh, Terry Sullivan, as your listeners may know, uh, about a year later, left the university. And when she did, that effort was, if you will, um, handed off to Virginia Tech, where their president, Tim Sands, took it over. And I'm happy to say that effort is still underway. It's a large effort that involves dozens and dozens of academic researchers, economic development officials, and others scattered throughout Virginia who are frankly trying to focus a lot of brain power on coming forward with concrete, positive, long-lasting, not one-hit wonder, solutions <laughs> to the problems facing Virginia. Their work is not yet finished. I wish them Godspeed and good luck but I'm happy, uh, anxious, I should say, to see the results of their work once it is over. I think uh, coming from both UVA and Virginia Tech with assistance from Virginia State University and all the community colleges in Virginia, with the resources that they have dedicated to this problem, I'm hopeful that they'll come forward with some solutions that will A, be sound, and B, be listened to and recognized as good advice by the legislature. Stay tuned. That's that's fantastic. And on that, that's that's we're going to end because we're running out of time. August, this has been an amazing hour, and I enjoyed listening to you. I know our listeners will as well. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, during the summer. I hope we can have you back again sometime. My pleasure. I would love to do it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.